KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Welcome back to another episode of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Close out Black History Month, I'll be speaking with Caroline Collins, a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Communication at UC San Diego. We'll discuss films that look to black people and a sense of place. When she sent me a list of films that included Daughters of the Dust, Eve's Bayou, Get Out, and Last Black Man in San Francisco, some of my favorite films of all time, I was eager to set up an interview. Her main field of study involves looking at how the history of the American West gets made and remade, particularly in California and especially in popular culture. We decided not to talk about black westerns because the pool of films is, well, pretty small. If you do want to check out some black westerns, the Criterion Channel will have a showcase in March. But to get enough films, they're stretching the genre to include The Learning Tree and Rosewood, which kind of supports my point that there really aren't that many black westerns around. And recent ones like the Magnificent Seven remake simply put a black star like Denzel Washington in a previously white role, which was previously Japanese, if you remember that the original Magnificent Seven was a remake of Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. But I digress. So sit tight while I take one quick break, and then I'll be back to speak with Caroline Collins about films that explore black people and their relationship to the land and a sense of place. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Caroline, I understand that you are interested in Black people and a sense of place and how that plays out in movies. So first of all, Tell me how you got interested in this. What's kind of your field of study and your background? First of all, thank you for having me. This is, this is a real pleasure. My field of study is actually in communication. So I received my, my PhD from UC San Diego in 2019 in the Department of Communication. And I, I basically look at how the history of the American West gets made and remade, uh, particularly in California and especially in popular culture. So I do things like archival research, you know, I sit in the archives and, and look at old dusty documents and photos. I also visit a lot of historic sites or places that we would call like public history sites. So um, a place like Old Town, San Diego, um, that state historic park and how it, it kind of tells the story of being the quote unquote birthplace of California. Um, but also I'm interested in, in popular culture. I, I teach uh, classes and how to read a film and um, looking at things like Hollywood Westerns and, and dime novels and stories like Little House on the Prairie, right? All these stories that are the stuff of how we kind of come to understand uh, the world around us. Um, it's, um, I really see them as being these really pivotal tools that we use to make sense of ourselves and each other. 
Now, in terms of looking back to the American West, one of the things you've mentioned is how people relate to the land. And that's something that's important to you. Very much so. I mean, so much of the narrative of the West, the myth of the West, right, is all about this settling, this quote unquote wild space and land, right? That it was about these hardy, rugged individuals that made this iconic trip east to west, right, over land to manifest their destinies, right, fighting both wild peoples and places um, in order to carve out this nation where there was none before, right? And that's full of all kinds of historical inaccuracies, right? And um, it doesn't pay attention to um, the violence of the colonial uh, project. It's not as inclusive as it should be of the there were all kinds of folks of color. There were women on the frontier. Um, indigenous folks were not wiped out. They are still contemporary beings, right, um, who are with us today. But I'm not a historian. So um, I do a lot of historical research and I, I do, I, I use historical methods, but I'm just really interested in the allure of that mythology, right, and why it has persisted for as long as it has and how it's persisted. How has it had to adapt in a change to, to, to changing times and people and customs, right? One thing that kind of does remain the same even in these different iterations of the story of the American West is the sense of romanticism about the land and what it means of who got there and when and who settled it and how and who was able to uh, bend it to to their will and and make some type of, of life upon the land. Now we've been talking about the Old West, but these are not going to be the films that we look to in talking about Black people in place, partially because there's not a huge collection of films that deal with Black characters in the Old West. So that's a whole other discussion, I feel like. But there are a group of films that you mentioned, which are some of my favorite films of all time. So I'm excited to talk about some of these. And we're going to start off, and this is kind of interesting because these are a pair of films that are both by Black women filmmakers. But one of the films that I remember reviewing when it first came out, which I adored, is Daughters of the Dust. And this is a film by Julie Dash. And give people a brief reminder of what the story is. Yeah, so this film um, is about a family, the Peasants, who have for a couple of generations been living on a remote island um, off the coast of South Carolina. And historically, there were these islands where um, folks who were known as, as Gullah or uh, Geechee uh, Creole folks were able to to live in relative peace from um, white uh, racial violence. Um, And they were able to carve out these lives on these islands and pass on a lot of ancestral practices and traditions that they had carried with them or that their ancestors had carried with them across the Atlantic uh, from from, uh, West Africa into enslavement into the American South. And so this is following um, this this family, um, but it's picking up at a really pivotal moment right they have this long-standing history of being on this island for these generations but we are are smack dab at the beginning of the great migration and this family is joining the migration and going to be um, leaving the island and heading north um, to take part of this um, really historic moment this is a story of some of the resistance from their great uh, matriarch uh, about this move and it's really kind of questioning how um, does a family wrestle with how do you stay connected in the face of, of migration, both forced and, and voluntary? When I was a child, my mother cut this from her hair before she was sold away from me. Now, 
an animal owned here. There must be a bond, a connection between those where they go north, those where they remain, between us where they here and us where they cross the sea. A connection. Well, and these are characters who, up to this point, are very much kind of defined by the land and the place where they are. And that sense of uprooting is kind of traumatic in this context. Completely. Especially, I mean, if we think about it historically, think about what it meant to be a Black family in the very early 20th century. I think this is set in 1902, 1905, it could be incorrect. But to have a longstanding connection to to land at that time, right? Um, And to not be dealing with the repercussions of immediate repercussions of enslavement or Jim Crow, right? To actually um, have a sense of ownership of the the land and the world around you and to now be putting that at risk or um, being willing to kind of sacrifice that for a new opportunity on the horizon that still was very much unknown, right? And they don't have the type of information at their fingertips like we have, right? There wasn't a Zillow and there wasn't Yelp. I mean, a lot of this was just from in Black newspapers or word of mouth or letters that folks were writing to each other um, about these possibilities, either in points north or west. And, you know, 5 million Americans, Black Americans left the South during this period in hopes that there would be some land of milk and honey that might be able to offer them something different from where they were. Eli, Eli, there's a thought, a recollection. Something somebody remembers. We carry these memories inside of we. Do you believe that those hundreds and hundreds of Africans brought here on this other side will forget everything they once knew? We don't know where the recollection comes from. Sometimes we dream them. But we carry these memories inside of we. What are we supposed to remember, Nana? How we one time was able to protect those we love? How in the Africa world we were kings and queens and built great big cities? Eli, I'm trying to learn you how to touch your own spirit. I'm fighting for my life and I'm fighting for yawn. Look in my face. I'm trying to give you something to take north with you along with all your great big dreams. Call on those old Africans, Eli. They come to you when you least expect them. They hug you up quick and soft as the warm, sweet wind. Let them old souls come into your heart, Eli. Let them touch you with the hand of time. Let them feed your head with wisdom that ain't from this day in time. Because when you leave this island, Eli Pazette, you ain't going to no land of milk and honey. Now, this is an interesting film, too, in the sense that a lot of what Hollywood likes to depict about Black America is much more urban and, and set in cities. And this is kind of a very different view, both in terms of the cinematic style that Julie Dash has and in terms of the story itself. So why is it important, do you think, for people to see a film like this? 
You know, this, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, it's a great little independent film. Julie Dash came out of the LA Rebellion um, School at UCLA. So it was this group of really innovative filmmakers that, you know, towards the end of the 60s to the end of the 80s. Our own UC San Diego's Zainabu Irene Davis actually is a product of that, that school. And so they were really all about telling these alternative stories in through alternative methods, right? And so it's important for people to pay attention to a film like this because one, it's a really innovative take on Black femininity, right? You often didn't see Black womanhood portrayed like this on, on screen. Generally, Black women were kind of tied to that dichotomy of between, you know, a mammy or a whore. But also you have Julie Dash, um, you know, using nonlinear storytelling, and she's also really tying these folks to the land in a really particular way, to the connection that they have in their agricultural practices, the way that they're making meals to eat with uh, one another, the, the ways that they're using the landscape to, to basket weave and, and to use the things that, that, that they need on a material level in everyday life. And also they're having this deep connection to the land that's not underscored by oppression, right? It's not, they're not connected to it because of enslavement or Jim Crow. Um, this is a family legacy that has been passed on from one generation to the other. Um, and it's a meditation on this experience of what it means to be rooted to the land in a particular manner. And there's a more recent film than this that also has a little bit of the same flavor of that connectedness to the land. And this is another film I really enjoy is Beasts of the Southern Wild, which is wildly imaginative in terms of how it portrays this, I think it's called the bathtub, and it's this little space that is about to be flooded and, and may disappear completely. One day, the storm's gonna blow, the ground's gonna sink, water's gonna rise up so high, there ain't gonna be no bathtub, just a whole bunch of water. And they bring mythic prehistoric animals in to kind of represent that. And that's kind of a, a more um, fantastical kind of way of looking at the connection to the land. Yeah, and not just fantastical. Also, now you're looking at characters who've chosen to stay, right? Whereas in Daughters of the Death, other than um, a couple of characters in our in our matriarch, most of the family is is moving on. Um, whereas in Beasts of the Southern Wild, our main protagonist, you know, Hush Puppy and her dad, they're like, you know, they're holding it down. <laughs> and there's even a moment where, you know, she's whispering to some of the other folks in the residence. They're like, should we leave? I mean, they're facing all kinds of ecological an economic disaster in their choice to stay. But I, I think in their choice, the audience again is reminded about the power of place, right? That this place is so important to this family, um, that this father is willing to, in many ways, risk himself and his, his daughter in order for them to still stake their claim and be able to, to have this sense of ownership um, of the land and the water. But me and my daddy, we stay right here. We's who the earth is for. Well, they're an interesting contrast in the sense of one is this defiant sense of we're going to stay here where we have our sense of place versus the moving in the hopes of getting something better. And yet they're both still these narratives about wanting to belong, you know, and it's do we have a better chance of belonging here? or is it on the horizon, you know? And I think that that's something that resonates with all folks, but particularly stories about black people in America. So, so much of our story has been about trying to carve out security and, and safety and a sense of, of, of belonging and, and, uh, and a, a sense of home, you know, within the nation. 
The other film directed by a black woman filmmaker is Eve's Bayou, Cassie Lemons. Memory is a selection of images, some elusive, others printed indelibly on the brain. The summer I killed my father, I was 10 years old. This is a more contemporary story, and it deals with a young girl's perspective. And we have the sense of place in the title itself. And what is it about this film that interested you? You know, I think, again, this film, Lemons is able to so beautifully portray, again, a family who's been connected to a place for a long sense of time. The town we lived in was named after a slave. It said that when General Jean-Paul Baptiste was stricken with cholera, his life was saved by the powerful medicine of an African slave woman called Eve. In return for his life, he freed her and gave her this piece of land by the bayou. Perhaps in gratitude, she bore him 16 children. We are the descendants of Eve and Jean-Paul Baptiste. Yes, there is some connection to enslavement, but it's still a celebration of, of their ownership of this, this piece of land and this swamp in the, in the bayou and the life um, that they're not only just carving out, but um, in, in many ways how they're thriving in this community and they are pillars in their, their community. And it's just this rich story of the different types of lives that are being lived in, uh, in, in this place. Now, this is a film that's complicated by the fact that it's a young girl who becomes aware of a secret in the family. And so how does the sense of place kind of play into this narrative where there's a sense of one image that's presented to the public and something else that's that's underneath? And how does that kind of play in this bayou setting? Well, you know, the bayou setting one, it's just- it's perfect for Southern Gothic and mystery, right? And and um, intrigue and this family again, as you mentioned, there's these these lies and secrets and and uh, perceptions and uh, a lot about memory in the film and and how is it that various parties um, remember a shared experience, right? I'm not sure if Lemons uh, if this was her intent, but as someone who studies the nation like I do, um, I really see that the way that this this family presents itself, right, is this pillar of the community. It's also built on all types of myths and secrets and lies, right? And I can see that being a a really nice mirror to America itself, right, of what it takes to have um, um, a nation as, quote unquote, multicultural as we are or full of the type of opportunity that we like to boast about what are some of the same myths that we have to kind of buy into? What must we tell ourselves about the nation in order to hold ourselves up as this beacon to the world, right, as well? Now, for a lot of people, the bayou also has this kind of sense of mystery and being shrouded in in things that we can't always fathom. And, and one thing that comes up within the context of the story is the notion of voodoo. And how does that play into this? Again, I see it as a, th- this notion of voodoo as kind of being a celebration, again, of, of, of their place and their, their ancestry. These are practices that have been passed on that weren't necessarily part of the colonial project, right? We can imagine um, that these were certain practices that were brought over across the Atlantic. And it's also about a sense of agency, um, a sense of ownership, of taking your own destiny in your hands and doing it your way. How do you kill someone with voodoo? I almost forgot you was there. 
I mean, do you just wish real hard that they were dead? Or do you have to do something special? I suppose you put some of that hay on a doll and stick pins in it or something. I really don't know. What makes you ask a thing like that? Nothing. Well, you must have been thinking something right before you were thinking that. What led you to that particular thought? I don't know. Is there someone around here that you're angry with? Someone that you want dead? I'm going inside. No, I think you better tell me what's on your mind. You have five seconds. Give me your hands. Give them to me. Well, go on and keep secrets if you want to. I won't squeeze it out of you. But you can't kill people with voodoo. That's ridiculous. So, yeah, I think another part that makes Eve's Bayou such a powerful film is that often in popular culture, Blackness really just gets collapsed with urbanity, right? We, we see Black people, as, uh, especially in, in contemporary um, representations, as solely being living in urban spaces and um, in these cities, right? And instead, this is a film that's really celebrating um, these relationships to the land um, that are in many ways dignified and, and aren't just bound to having this pure urban experience. Experience. So Daughters of the Dust and Eve's Bayou are both films that are approaching two decades old or more. But Last Black Man in San Francisco is much more recent. And it deals with a really wonderful sense of how do you define home? We built these ships. Dredged these canals. In the San Francisco they never knew existed. This is our home. You two stick together. San Francisco is a big city that's going through a lot of changes and has gone through a lot of changes. So how does the sense of place in this film differ from Eve's Bayou and Daughters of the Dust? So now we're on the West Coast. Now we are in an urban space, right, with this film. And it's also about a place kind of slipping through your fingers. Um, whereas Daughters of the Dust, there was this voluntary choice by the family to move. Eve's Bayou, there was still this rudeness to, to the to place. And now, as you mentioned, in this film, you know, we're seeing San Francisco um, change. Gentrification is taking, you know, full hold of, of the region. Um, and that there also is this sense of loss not just for our, our main characters, but also for the people of California, for the nation, that there hasn't been this recognition of all of the previous Black folks who've come before us in California, who helped build a lot of these cities, who lived in these cities, um, who uh, aren't just modern day beings. So I think that's a huge difference you see in this film. For the main character, the sense of home is really limited for him, at least from the beginning, to a very specific single dwelling. To him, it is just that one spot. 
And what is it about a character like that in terms of having so, of trying to so narrowly define that sense of home? And what does that mean for a character? Yeah, I mean, I think it shows just how important these places can be um, in the way that we live our lives and how we shape our identities. And for him, that particular home had so much importance because in his family lore, right, that that was the home that his grandfather built, right? And that home represented um, a time when his family was cohesive, when they were successful, when there was promise, when there was opportunity and security. Um, and so he has tied all of those really important emotions and sense of security to that physical space space. Um, and when he feels that, that his relationship to that space is threatened, then all of these other feelings of security are threatened as well. This house was built in the 1940s. <laughs> Say hi to our neighbor here, everybody. That would actually be about 100 years late for this style. We can see from his gingerbread trim, this was built sometime in the 1850s. Uh, 1946. I'm gonna have to disagree with you there, dude, man. No architect in the 1940s was building in this style. That's probably true, but this wasn't built by an architect. My grandfather built this. He came here in World War II. He bought this lot and he built this house. The stairs, these windows, the columns, the archways, the witch hat, the balustrades, the fish scales, this balcony, that wall to keep you all the fuck out, all of it by Jimmy Fells the first with his own two hands in 1946. And as you mentioned, this is moving west. What is kind of the connection between this new West and the old West and how does that play out? I think one major um, connection, again, is the sense of invisibility of many folks in the West, um, that there were all kinds of folks who were part of the fabric of the region and helped it, um, you know, become what it is today. That opening sequence of the last Black man in San Francisco is just so beautiful and cinematically it's gorgeous, but, you know, also what's being said, you know, this is our home, right? Um, and they're really staking a claim, you know, uh, about themselves and their, their, their space. And so I think that there is this connection as well to the stories we tell about the old west too who gets to be included in these these stories that take place in popular culture you know who's in the huge westerns who's in the, the dime novels who gets to claim um a sense of belonging to a place like the american west that in so many ways represents america and what kind of ties these three films that we've talked about so far is also the sense of memory and also a sense of even lies you tell yourself that become truth sort of after repeating them enough. And how does that kind of reflect the connection to the land? You know, I mentioned the myth of the West earlier, right? So the, the myth of the West is the story that we tell about the land in America and especially the the, the Western land, right? It's, it's a way that we remember it culturally, you know, so it's part of the fabric of cultural memory. And in many ways, it's built on all of these secrets and lies and misconceptions and perceptions about 
um, what it means to really be home in a place and who belongs in a place and who is heir to a place and um, who's legitimate and who's not, right? Um, and these are, are questions that we still see played out, you know, even in politics and in, uh, in the, the way we make our borders and enforce our borders. And all of these things are discussed, you know, in popular culture like, like film. Now I want to move on to a pair of films that have a much more kind of a much more urban contemporary feel. And these are both films that kind of stray from reality. It's uh, Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You, which does harken back to Last Black Man in San Francisco in terms of location. And then uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out. And both of these films, I think, were just from a filmmaking standpoint, just remarkable. They felt so fresh and original in terms of kind of the cinematic language they were using. Sorry to bother you. Let's talk about that one first, because this is a film that really spins out of control. It starts, you know, as a very kind of it's this guy who works, you know, making sales calls. And from there, it goes off into a fantastical kind of realm. When Boots was like, yo, we're going to do this movie in Oakland, I'm like, yeah, man. This film is an absurdist dark comedy with magical realism and science fiction inspired by the world of telemarketing. When a film spins into this fantastical realm, yet is set kind of very vividly in a real world, how does that kind of affect the discussion about the connection to place and land? I mean, you're right. I mean, the whole magical realism element of that film, I mean, it's just... It's surreal. Uh, it just takes you for this ride. It's wildly entertaining because of it, and sometimes perplexing and sometimes shocking. But I think at the end of the day, Riley is um, allowing us to still have a really nuanced conversation about place, especially in terms of the absurdity of where we are today in terms of unhoused folks or housing precarity or um, uh, inequity in terms of, of income and all of the ways that we are able to or not able to live upon the land and to eke out some type of, of living. Um, and so as absurd as a lot of the, the plot becomes uh, in, in the film, I think it is highlighting um, the absurdity of the inequity that we live with every day, especially in a place like the Bay Area in California, um, when when housing inequity is just so stark. And although this has a very different cinematic style from Last Black Man in San Francisco, which I think makes it harder to compare the two, they are kind of crossing similar themes in terms of how they're looking at these characters' inability to kind of find a place where they feel at home. Completely. And though they are kind of going about it in different ways, right? Cassius and Sorry to Bother You, a lot of his uh, trying to feel at home isn't necessarily tied to his domicile. You know, right in the beginning, he's temporarily living in his uncle's garage, right? But for him, a lot of that homemaking takes place in the workplace, which is another really great take on, on, on connectivity to, to place. And 
he is trying to find a sense of security in his office and um, trying to have some type of upward mobility and security on the job. And then there's this wonderful storyline about him actually kind of ascending to a higher level of um, at his job where he's not just ascending, you know, metaphorically and having a promotion, but he literally kind of goes up to higher floors and this whole absurd elevator, you know, scene um, to where the magic kind of happens on this high level um, floor um, within his his corporate structure. Now, one of the added layers to Sorry to Bother You is that in order to make that ascension, he he's told that if he wants to succeed at this job, he needs to find his white voice. And this is something that's pointed out by the older character, Danny Glover. Hey, young blood, let me give you a tip. Use your white voice. Man, I ain't got no white voice. Oh, come on, you know what I mean. You have a white voice in there, you can use it. It's like when you pulled over by the police. Oh, no, I just use my regular voice when that happens. I just say, back the fuck up off the car and don't nobody get out. All right, man, I'm just trying to give you some game. You want to make some money here? Then read the script with a white voice. People say I talk with a white voice anyway, so why ain't it helping me out? Well, you don't talk white enough. I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. I'm talking about the real deal, like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer, this is Langston from Regal View. I didn't catch you at the wrong time, did I? And so once he assumes this white voice, that's when he suddenly starts to accelerate his, you know, climb in his uh, in his workplace. And so what does that then add to the conversation about a sense of place and land if you have to kind of give up the things that make you who you are? in order to kind of find the place that you want to be at. Yeah, I mean, so many of these stories, when we're talking about land and belonging and migration and rootedness or, or being disconnected, um, it is about, you know, this calculation that often these migrants are, are, are weighing of, of, you know, how much do I assimilate? How much do I disconnect myself from my ancestral practices, right? And so when we talked about something like voodoo and Eve's Bayou, that this was a way to kind of hold on to this longstanding practice, or in Daughters of the Deaths, when the, the matriarch Nana is kind of cutting off parts of her hair to add it to her mother's hair and is telling them, hey, when y'all go north, like, you have to also remember where you came from and who you you are. And she says, um, the biggest challenge that's going to face you free Negroes going north is kind of remembering who you are and not forgetting your family, right? And so um, we can see that in um, in Boots Riley's film, and sorry to bother you, we see it the same conversation played out kind of in this really farcical way, right? Where in order to make it um, in these traditional white spaces, you have to kind of take on this white voice that's done, you know, um, in a really surreal manner and comical manner um, in, in the film. But again, it's using this absurdity to, to really think about what does that mean? What does that mean that you are expected to kind of give up parts of your identity, parts of your ancestry, parts of your legacy in order to just kind of to make it and be accepted and to feel like you're home um, wherever it is that you're kind of laying your stakes? Now, and sorry to bother you, Cassius, maybe he doesn't have complete control over his life, but he's making decisions that are causing things to happen. Now, in Jordan Peele's Get Out, we have a situation where the character is not entirely kind of in control of things that are happening to him, which adds the layer of horror to this one. Get out. 
Sorry, man. Okay. Get out! Yo! 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 Chill, man! Chill! 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 Seizures create anxiety, which can trigger aggression. Yeah, but like randomly attacking other people? Oh, it's not random. You know, it was your flash. That's what set him off. Hey. Well. How's he doing? He's much better. <laughs> I imagine that I owe you all an apology. No, no, no. We're just very happy that you're yourself again. Yes. Yes, I am. Hmm. And I thank God for you for calming me down. I know that I must have frightened you all quite a bit, especially you, Chris. Oh, I'm sorry. The Flash, I didn't know. Of course not. How could you have? And you shouldn't have been drinking either. Yes. This kind of goes a little bit more into this sense of physical and psychological place. Yeah. I mean, I think that was one of the genius of, of Peel's story is that, you know, the reason why it was such a compelling social th thriller kind of reminds me, I can't remember who I saw once said that what made Alien so compelling was that it it took the, ha the haunted house story and kind of turned it on its head because you say, why don't you just leave the haunted house, right? And so now all of a sudden you have Ripley and she's it, she can't leave, right? She's stuck. What do you do when you're stuck in the spaceship, right? And so I think Peel was able to kind of raise some similar questions about um you know whether it's okay well do we go north and stay or do we hold on to this piece of land or do we try to fight it out and you know like hush puppy and her dad did he's saying well maybe none of that really matters because what if a, a part of the the challenge and that that is is also your your connectivity on a psychological level right um what does it mean when you are being constrained in certain ways not just physically but also psychologically and so it's this really interesting you know meditation on the experience of black folks in america especially in a seemingly quote unquote post-racial society after the election of Obama, what does it still mean to be um, trapped um, in particular ways, um, not just physically, but also psychologically? Well, I'd have to say that one of the most terrifying moments in the film is that notion of the sunken place. Tell me when you found it. Come here, Chris, look at me. <laughs> Found it. Where was your mom? She, uh... She was coming home. She wasn't home. From work? Mm. Mm. And... What do you do? Nothing. Nothing? I just sat there. You didn't call anyone? No. Why not? <laughs> I don't know. I just thought that if I did, make it real. Hmm. You're so scared. 
was your father. How do you feel now? I can't move. You can't move. Why can't I move? You're paralyzed. Just like that day when you did nothing. You did nothing. Now, sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. Talk a little bit about that, just in terms of the the kind of that horror aspect to it, but but what it kind of means in in that context of having a, a sense of place or land and and what this because it really was one of the most terrifying moments in the film. Completely terrifying, especially since he's lost all agency, right? And it's so it's seemingly so irreparable, right? That um, how was he supposed to ever? Uh, escape from this and the other folks who have been bound um you know to that that second place and if if there isn't a light shined on it um you kind of end up getting stuck in this this place i mean lakeith stanfield's character he was only kind of jarred out of of his uh temporary uh binding in the second place um it was with the the flash of the camera right that kind of was able to temporarily kind of get him out in time enough to warn our protagonist you know to get out and leave um and so um the way it's shot that scene is he's kind of sinking down um and he's just so adrift he's not connected to anything it's just this black space he almost seems as if he's floating in water a bit as well which um to me is reminiscent a bit of even kind of the middle passage um, and so um, it's, it's just kind of being um, forever unrooted, right? And forever, um, your, your, your body will forever be used as a particular type of labor or entertainment or all of the other things that Black bodies are often subject to in America. It's forever going to be in this state and there is no getting out of it. You, you are sunk sunk in there and um, there's just no escape. Um, and I and I think that was just terrifying on so many levels, especially since it was such a cerebral take on, on it. Um, it was a monster that everyone kind of could recognize. Um, it wasn't just, you know, some monster under the, the bed. I mean, everyone has, has dealt with these type of social de demons um, in their everyday lives. Well, I have to confess that one of my greatest fears is this sense of loss of identity, which, you know, can come through illness, like Alzheimer's, where you're no longer yourself. But to have these characters where they appear, they look like themselves, but they are no longer themselves except for this little tiny like flash that they, they occasionally get is just like this most terrifying sense of loss and it is i was gonna say i can remember when i was maybe six i saw one of the old invasion of the body snatchers and i can remember that was terrifying to me and i remember one of the reasons why was this sense of, of a loss of identity and who these these people were and they didn't have any agency over themselves or, or or their bodies or their consciousness anymore and that's just a terrifying thing and the fact that you know, if you're taken over by something else and that your original self no longer has agency, you may be doing things that you don't want to. And like that, 
you know, like, again, that's just always like in a horror film, anytime you broach that area of loss of identity, it's like the scariest things. Forget monsters, forget, you know, anything else. Like, And I think that pairs really nicely with Cassius and Sorry to Bother You having to use his white voice, right? Who he was kind of, as you mentioned, I mean, he did have agency in, in in some ways and he was choosing to use that voice but he was still having to be this person who he wasn't in order to navigate his his space and his place at the time and you did mention the scene where um keith stanford tells him to get out and again this is a scene where everything seems very calm and quiet and on on the surface there isn't any real sense of terror or horror but it's kind of in that blandness that you know that that jarring moment really shakes you out of that sense of you know it seems like a safe environment but it's totally not completely and i think that was part of pill's brilliance right of what he was kind of saying about uh, america right um especially since in this social thriller the the boogeyman especially since he was talking about notions of things like race and racism they weren't necessarily your in your face overtly you know racist um citizens and, and neighbors it was these so-called allies right and so-called progressives um and people who um who you feel are su supposed to somewhat be able to, if not identify with you, at least kind of be able to keep you safe. And in, the, and in fact, they were the monsters, right? And so um, that's what uh, a lot of the, the fear and the horror was in this film is that are we ever safe? Can we ever be safe um, in, in this nation? And I believe his original ending uh, was a little bit more realistic. I think when the police come, it was the outcome that at least most Black folks thought was coming when they were watching the film. And that the answer is no, I guess we can never really be safe. And um, I think he had such, um, people had such strong reactions to that that um, ending that he didn't end up changing it and, and has the one that we have now. Yeah, I believe it It was a much darker ending. And I think he, he felt after some test screenings, I think it was that there was so much connection to that main character that he just felt he couldn't be that cruel <laughs> at the end, which I'm grateful for. There's, it's nice that there was one tiny <laughs> bit of redemption at the end for him. I think it makes it rewatchable because of that. I'm not sure. I don't know if I would revisit it if it didn't end up. Now, you did mention Get Out, how um, it came in this kind of Obama post-racial society. How has like that sense of place in film, has it changed over the course of, the, of time? I mean, do you see that films are treating Black characters and their sense of land and place differently uh, since we've had Trump as president or just, you know, uh, in more recent years? I think in more recent years, the trend we're just seeing, not even just about place, about all aspects of the Black experiences that we're just seeing, more storytellers, more stories being told. Um, I think the fact that we had this huge suite and ensemble of films that we could talk about that were all within just a couple year span, as opposed to kind of just having Daughters of the Dust and, and Eve's Bayou. Now that there that there weren't other films as well, you know, uh, that were that were being made at the, that time. But I think as the years go by, we're just seeing more stories that are taking up all types of questions, including um, the relationships of, of Black folks to the land around them. I think that um, there is a, a yearning 
um, um, of audiences to see people who look like themselves and who just also look like other folks um, and to, to kind of revisit these stories about what it means to belong in America. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I've you know, heard only wonderful things of like Minati and like the, uh, that's again, another story that's, that's kind of rural in nature and it's a, a particular type of homesteader and it's a different face of a homesteader and a Korean American. Um, I think that we are going to just see only more and more of these types of stories emerge of of all the different types of folks who have come and and tried to make a living um, on the land or live within the land be that urban or, or rural here in america sorry to bother you and get out both have kind of dark aspects to them and uh serve up something that really makes you think uh, in a provocative way about some of these ideas Let's go out on a slightly more positive note. Um, although those are brilliant films, uh, the vision of America is, is fairly dark in them. But Black Panther, when that opened, it felt like there was such a sense of celebration and such a sense of like, this is something people really wanted to see. And it brings up the notion of Afrofuturism. So talk a little bit about what that means and and how that relates to kind of a sense of place and land. Yeah, I mean, Afrofuturism is an aesthetic that's really about celebrating imagining black folks in in future what does it mean to to um, imagine different possibilities of, of black futures right um, especially in terms of storytelling black folks often didn't make it to the end of certain tales right so that was always the horror trope right that the black character didn't make it to the end it, it was such a huge deal when Star Trek had the type of characters that it did right that it had black characters who were in in an imagined future right and so there's this power of um, especially some of the the Afrofuturist scholars um, who've kind of developed the field, they talk about the way that um, Black folks have been ruptured from their histories in so many ways and not be not being included in histories, right? Um, the podcast that I just released, We Are Not Strangers Here, is all about retelling the history of California and these rural spaces and African-Americans being there. So Afrofuturism kind of turns that on the conversation on its head and says, um, in a space where uh, Black folks are often ruptured from, um, from their history in these particular ways, what does it mean then to envision possible futures um, that, that are including Black folks? Um, and that can be, you know, in, in dystopian films and in zombie apocalypses, but it can also be in these huge blockbuster Marvel, you know, action adventures uh, like Black Panther. I have great things to show you, brother. Here are your communication devices for Korea. Unlimited range, also equipped with audio surveillance system. Check these out. Remote access Kimoyo beats, updated to interface directly with my sand table. And so it was just this huge cultural moment um, that was connecting the diaspora in all these different ways of kind of celebrating what it meant to um, en envision uh, the Black experience in this really positive way um, in, in an imagined future. Well, in all the other films we've been talking about, they're all very rooted in America. And in Black Panther, we're given a character who comes from a fictitious country, but 
Wakanda is in Africa. So it's connecting kind of these two continents in its exploration of land and place. Yeah, and it's able to have a different take on place because it's not connected to colonialism, right? And so it's able to imagine this particular type of storyline and narrative and characters um, because it's not tethered to the shackles of colonialism like um, America and so many other uh, nations are. And so it allows for this particular type of storytelling where a place like Wakanda can exist and a leader like uh, T'Challa can exist. And kind of one of the things it suggests is that in this country, the Black characters have come so far, they have this great, you know, their science, their technology is far advanced from any of the, you know, white countries. And it's this, you know, it's this suggestion that like without that sense of oppression, without that that sense of being tied to, to issues like slavery, they were free to kind of create this world. And it kind of gives you that sense of what could possibly be or, you know, this alternative reality or parallel yeah, and so much of that alternative reality is about a celebration of, of, of being uninterrupted, right? You know, um, uh, what could have been possible um, for Black folks and for the diaspora um, um, without the interruption, the major interruption um, of life and liberty through the project of colonialism. And so Wakanda is this wonderful imaginative space and place and um, and palette for us to kind of play with and imagine what it might have looked like without that interruption. Well, and one of the things I really admired about the film is that instead of having a villain, we have Killmonger, who, although he is the villain of the piece, so to say, he's very sympathetic in the sense that we understand where he's coming from. And he is the opposite. He is someone who has been in America, who has had to deal with oppression and racism and difficulties. And so although he's the bad guy of the piece, we have compassion for kind of where he came from, especially with Michael B. Jordan's performance. I want the throne. <laughs> hey, you, the tuna. <laughs> Y'all sitting up here comfortable. Must feel good. It's about two billion people all over the world that looks like us, but their lives are a lot harder. Wakanda has the tools to liberate them all. And what tools are those? Vibranium. Your weapons. Our weapons will not be used to wage war on the world. It is not our way to be judge, jury, and executioner for people who are not our own. Not your own. But didn't life start right here on this continent? So ain't all people your people? I am not king of all people. I am king of Wakanda. And it is my responsibility to make sure our people are safe and that vibranium does not fall into the hands of a person like you. Son, we have entertained the charlatan for too long. Reject his request. Oh, I ain't requesting nothing. Ask who I am. You know, he makes the character very sympathetic in terms of understanding kind of his environment. Yeah, I mean, I think between Jordan's performance and, you know, Kugler, I mean, the way that they paint these characters, especially within, you know, a huge blockbuster film, right, that oftentimes, you know, these types of popcorn flicks take a bad rap, right, it's not having nuance, but um, the 
his performance is done in such a, a deeply rooted sympathetic way that it does kind of highlight the tragedy and the trauma of, of colonialism and of oppression um, and of interruptedness, right? Could, um, could Killmonger have been T'Challa if you know not for all of these different um, circumstances? And so I think that was a, a really beautiful move to make to not have this um, this villain who is just so um, broadly painted and is so kind of tied to these traditional notions of what a villain is because then the villain kind of emerges more as um, in many ways, colonialism and, and, and racial violence. It's not necessarily Krillmonger. Well, I wanna thank you very much for talking about all these films. Do you have any uh, closing words you'd like to leave people with? Oh man, I guess my closing words would just be to get out there and enjoy films. And I guess when I say get out there, even if that's on your computer or on your phone, that there's just so much that we learn about ourselves and each other through the medium of film and through popular culture. Watch films that you might not feel um, are something you would normally watch um, and really think about how are these films helping to shape your understanding of, of your rootedness or disconnectivity to a place? Um, and, and how might you be able to rethink your own relationship to your place through the films that you're watching? All right. Well, I want to thank you very much. And you mentioned you had done a podcast. Where can people find that? Sure. You can find um, the Calag Roots podcast, which is called We Are Not Strangers Here on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. Um, and please make sure that you do um, rate it and, and subscribe so that more folks can find it. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was Caroline Collins, a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Communication at UC San Diego. Thanks for listening to another episode of Cinema Junkie. I'm going to be taking a short break to retool the podcast and return with something better. While I'm cooking up something new, I'll replay some of the most popular episodes to keep you entertained. Please follow me and my Cinema Junkie page on Facebook or on Twitter and Instagram as Cinebeth to find out when the relaunch will be happening. Also, check out my 28 Days of Black Film History at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie, where I cover a century of films by black filmmakers, from the silent films of Oscar Micheaux to the superhero of Black Panther. Thanks so much for your support. If you'd like to provide any feedback about what you like or don't like about the show, please drop me a note on social media or contact me through the KPBS website. I'll be back with new episodes very soon. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.